This is Murray from the Dice Stormers. In order to celebrate the release of Chaosium's Call of Cthulhu starter set, we thought we'd try something a bit different. Book one of the starter set is a solo introductory adventure called Alone Against the Flames, which teaches you the basics of the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. The adventure is set out in a series of numbered paragraphs. At the conclusion of some of these, a decision must be made or dice rolled. We thought it would be a great idea to play this adventure with you. So, if you're comfortable and feeling sane, let's play Alone Against the Flames. The sun is high in the sky, a merciless ball of heat. You feel scorched by the time you reach the bus halt in front of Osborne's drugstore. It's a relief to put down your heavy cases and take off your hat for a moment. You fan your face. It has been a long summer here in your hometown, and yet a curiously empty one. You look across the street at the grubby butcher's shop, the grocer's with its faded awning, and the shabby tobacconist. Mistrustful faces glare at you as they pass, eyeing your clothes and luggage. It was your parents' choice to live here, not yours. You were happy down south as a child among Providence's white-walled houses and leafy churchyards. Perhaps this new job in Arkham will supply you with the change you need. Yet everybody you know in the world lives here. You know nobody in Arkham, not one soul. You ask yourself for one last time if you are doing the right thing. The answer is here. None of your supposed friends have come to see you off. You are alone. Whatever challenges lie in Arkham, it will be a new life and a brave one. A small grey motor coach approaches and rattles to a stop. You put your hat back on and pick up your cases. Two young men with sullen expressions alight from the coach. One looks you up and down before heading away. The driver also steps down, glancing at you before crossing the road to visit the tobacconist. When he returns, he is rolling a cigarette between his yellowed fingers. He gives it a final twist and examines you as he reaches for his matchbox. He is a thin man in his fifties, dressed in a stained shirt with the bus company emblem. Yet his eyes are sharp in their dark sockets. Where to? You show him your ticket for Ossipee. From there you will connect to Rochester and Portsmouth before the coastal line to Newburyport and finally Arkham. You should be able to afford a rail ticket for at least some of the way, otherwise this will be the first of many long bus trips. Mm-hmm. The driver scratches the match and lights his cigarette. The end flares as he takes a draw. Then he exhales and gestures to the back of the coach. Luggage racks up there. Look at your investigator sheet. At the top, you have spaces for eight characteristics. Strength, constitution, power, dexterity, appearance, size, intelligence, and education. Allocate the following values among them, writing them in the large square brackets beside each. 40, 50, 50, 50, 60, 60, 70, and 80. If you would like more information about what these characteristic means, characteristics mean, then you should read page 7 of book 2. Now, we thought it would be a great idea to do these randomly. So what I've got 
is I've got two shuffle decks of cards and they've got the attributes on each. So what I thought we would do, if you'd like to play it along at home, there's a link in the post down below to download the blank character sheet from Chaosium's website. So here we go. Power. 50. Education. 60. Strength. 40. <laughs> Constitution. 70. Lucky. Dexterity. 50. Size. 60. Hmm. Intelligence. 50. Appearance. 80. Then turn to eight. The driver smokes and watches you as you drag your cases to the back of the motor coach. The rack is set inconveniently high on the vehicle. You get a grip on the heavier case. If your size is 40, go to 23. If your size is higher than this, go to 38. 38. The driver continues to enjoy his cigarette, watching with keen interest as you struggle with the cases. You grit your teeth and heave the second one into place. Perhaps the residents of Arkham will have better manners. The driver flicks his cigarette into the gutter and steps into the motor coach. Its engine coughs into life. You board, grateful that you will be the only passenger for the initial part of the trip, at least. With mixed emotions you watch from the window as the tired avenues of your old home slip behind you, receding into the distance. For a few minutes you can see the church spire over the brow of a low hill. Then the road dips and it too is gone. Arkham is your new home. You will travel there and you will make a new start. You will see two smaller boxes to the right of each characteristic value. Halve each value, rounding down, and write the result in the upper right box. Also, divide each value by five, again rounding down, and write the result in the lower right box. We will use these numbers later in the adventure. If you are using the interactive PDF version of the investigator sheet, you'll see it does all of the math for you. In the strip below, you will see the tracks that record sanity and magic points. Beginning sanity is equal to your original power, and beginning magic points are the same as the value you've just assigned for power divided by 5. Mark these on the tracks. The coach putters through the countryside. At first, the interior is stifling and your stomach lurches with every bend in the road. However, the driver opens his window and by switching seats, you find a spot where the breeze hits your face. You soon relax into the journey, observing the quaint little hamlets that the coach serves. A heavy-set woman boards at one settlement and gives you a polite nod. She gets off at the next one. The road rises a little, passing cornfields and orchards. The roads, the leaves are turning and the trees are alive with glorious reds and golds. You have just begun to doze when the driver takes a tight bend at speed. 
add size and con together and then divide the total by 10 rounding down. This is the starting value for your hit points. Mark it on your investigator sheet. Your current total may drop, but it is unlikely to exceed the starting value. You also have a luck score. Roll three six-sided dice. We call this 3d6. Multiply your 3d6 roll by five to get your beginning luck store score and mark it on your investigator sheet. Four, one, three. So eight times five, 40. Now you must mark a roll against your decks. Roll a d100. This means rolling two 10-sided dice and using one value from the tens and one from the units. Unless a die clearly has tens and units, see role-playing dice. Luckily, the ones in the set do. We roll hmm, a 57 for our decks, so we're unsuccessful. Therefore, we failed our decks roll, we go to chapter 59. A desperate yell awakens you. You feel yourself slide from the seat as the driver spins the wheel and the motor coach plunges off the road. Too late, you reach for the seat in front. You fall into the aisle and your ribs crash against the edge of the seat opposite. Breath rushes out of you. The coach stops with a thump. Your driver leaps from his seat and into the road. As you sprawl dizzy in the aisle, you hear a string of incendiary curses. The driver climbs back into the cab and sees you on the floor. He looks concerned and, con and assists you, with you back into your seat. You see what has happened now. A Fordson tractor has stopped in the road and he had to swerve to avoid the steel obstacle. Sorry, he says. All them fields and he has to pick the road to park. You all right? You don't think anything's broken, but you'll have a colorful bruise for the next few days. He backs the coach up a little and threads it round the tractor, glaring at the farmer. You lost one hit point in the accident. Mark the loss on your investigator sheet, but keep track of the original value. You will eventually heal back up to this value. If you drop to zero hit points, you fall unconscious and might die. You resume your journey. The driver takes the curves with more caution than before. He glances over his shoulder at you a couple of times. Sorry about before, he says. That fellow was, was dumber than a hog. I'm Silas. What's your name? The accident was at least as much Silas's fault as the farmer's. But it doesn't seem shrewd to antagonize the man while he is driving you through the middle of nowhere. Make up a name for your character and record it on your investigator sheet. You may add your age. For the purposes of this adventure, your character should probably be aged between 23 and 36. The coach turns into a narrower road which weaves uphill through woodland. Silas becomes chatty. Going to Arkham, eh? Can't say as I've ever heard of the place. Went to Boston once. Didn't like it. Too much hustle and bustle. You got family there? A special someone waiting? The afternoon is wearing on. You see no harm in confiding in Silas about your new life. A job, eh? What's your line? Now, we have to choose an occupation for our character from the following options, and this is poll one. The options are in the poll below. Antiquarian, doctor of medicine, journalist, private investigator, or professor.
The result is that our investigator is an antiquarian specialising in Mesopotamia, that's the ancient Near East. We will choose the name, age and gender from the suggestions made by you from this hat. Our investigator is Julie Vernilion, 28 female. You mentioned the assistance position you were offered at Arkham Rare Books and Maps on the strength of a recommendation by a distant friend of the family. Thinking about the treasures that must pass through that shop returns some of the excitement you felt upon receiving the letter of appointment. You feel a tingle in your palms and you cannot wait to get started. Books, eh? Silas takes the conversation no further. You get the feeling he is not much of a reader. Your credit rating skill is 20%. Your occupation skills are appraise, art craft, history, library use, other language, spot hidden, and one other. We've chosen fast talk. You may also pick one other skill, uh, except Cthulhu Mythos as a personal speciality. We've chosen psychology. Now, we've got some values to give, and we've used our randomly shuffled card mechanic to do so. So, other language... 50. History. 60. Library use. 60. Fast talk. 50. Appraise. 40. Art craft. 40. Spot hidden, 70, psychology, 50. You may allocate these values to your character sheet. You realize Silas hasn't made a stop since the incidents with the tractor. The motor coach winds its way uphill. However, your thoughts are interrupted as the road crests a ridge and you are treated to a magnificent view of the vista below. A creek snakes through the valley, breaking the rich autumn palette of the tree line. In the distance, the white mountain rise into a hazy cloud. There is no settlement, not even a cabin, as far as the eye can see. The birds drift through the treetops, and you can just make out what might be two white-tailed deer lingering by the water. Perhaps you are making a mistake by moving to the city. Could you survive on your own in this lush wilderness? You have a base ability in most skills listed in brackets after your skill name on the investigator sheet. For instance, you have 20% in climb and a base dodge equal to half your dex. Choose four skills which are not occupation skills nor Cthulhu Mythos. We thought we'd do these in the comments below. So if you can choose for us our personal interest skills, we can boost each of those by 20%. At this point, you might like to calculate the half and one-fifth values for each skill, the same way we did for the characteristics. Remember to round down. If you're bored of, of calculations, then you can leave the math uh, until it becomes necessary, or use the interactive PDF and it will do it for you. The motor coach rattles on through the hills and Silas lapses into silence. The sky darkens behind you, pinks tinting the clouds as the sun descends. Finally, a welcome sight comes into view a settlement on the crest of a hill. 
This doesn't look like the pictures you've seen of Ossipee. But perhaps you can persuade Silas to stop while you stretch your legs. Minutes later, a harsh stuttering from the engine interrupts your reverie. Silas frowns and rattles the gear stick. The motor coach falters in its ascent. Silas utters a curse you don't recognize and grinds his teeth, struggling at the wheel. You seem to inch up the hill until you reach the first buildings, low dwellings constructed from rough red stone. Silas wrestles the coach into a small bay off the road. He scrambles from his seat and makes for the engine compartment. You must now choose to make a roll against drive, auto, or psychology. Since we've taken psychology, we'll use that. And we need a hard success, which is half the value of our skill. So we roll a 79. So we do not make our hard pass against psychology. Silas opens the engine compartment and sticks his head inside. The hot metal pops and sizzles. He pokes at various components and then withdraws and wipes his brow, smearing it with dark grease. I ain't sure what's wrong. Might be the oil pressure, might be something knocked off kilter when we took that spill. Can't do much with, until the engine cools neither. And with the light failing, I reckon we'll be here through the night. He wipes his hands on a rag. The shadows from your surroundings are already long and the air is chilly. You feel stiff from the journey and a night in the rickety coach sounds unappealing. Silas sees your dismay. This here's Emberhead, miles from any place. I only come through twice a week. But the folks here are good people. May Ledbetter keeps a spare room. She'll look after you. Up that alley, turn right, first house on the left. He scratches his cheek, looks again into the engine compartment, and spits on the ground. Meet me back here at eight in the morning, and we, we'll see how we stand. We've reached our second pole. The options below tell you whether we're going to look for May Ledbetter's house, or whether we're going to ask Silas where he plans to spend the night. result was to ask Silas where he will spend the night. Our investigator, Julie Vermillion, is almost complete. Her last four skills, as chosen by you, are natural world, stealth, occult, and we need to boost our skills by 20 in each of those. So natural world goes to 30%, stealth to 40%, occult to 25%. Now, for our final skill, we need to roll a d8 to choose from your suggestions. Brawl, charm, firearms, archaeology, mechanical repair, survival, and swim. Eight, re-roll. A seven, that is swim. So our swim skill gets boosted to 40%. Are we ready? You ask about Silas's plans. He gives the engine a sour glance before answering. I've got acquaintances here in the village. Reckon one of them owes me a favor. Enough for bed and breakfast in any case. He stares at his grubby hands. Probably won't stretch to a hot bath. You don't seem to have a lot of options. You fetch your cases from the back of the motor coach. The last thing you need is for all your worldly possessions to disappear into some stranger's hovel overnight. You drag your cases between the sullen buildings. You feel surprisingly weary, considering you have spent all day sitting down. Silas's directions lead you to a modest dwelling with a slate roof. A nameplate reads, Leadbetter. 
and underneath a sign in neat copper plate reads lodging room. The lane around you is gloomy, but a lamp flickers in the window. A breeze chills your face. You're not about to begin your new life by sleeping in the street. You rap on the weather-beaten door. After a moment, you hear a footsteps inside the house. A bolt is drawn back and the wooden door swings open. A figure whose loose curls and a rough-looking house dress peers at you. Her gaze takes in your traveling suit and your cases. Her voice has a slight Irish lilt. Hello. Should I take it you're looking for a room for the night? You inquire as to her rates, suppressing a grimace. As far as you've seen, the village does not offer you many alternatives. Oh, you'll find them very reasonable, she says. You look tired. I may. Come inside and we'll talk over a cup of tea. The Ledbetter house feels cramped with a low ceiling and simple fittings. But it is well kept and a cheerful fire crackles in the grate. The aroma of tea is soothing and the cup warms your fingers. Have you come to Emberhead for the festival? asks May. Well now, I suppose the festival is about the only reason folks come to Emberhead. I thought you had maybe come to study it or take photographs. Well, it's not tomorrow night, it's the night after. I suppose it looks very strange to the passerby. May tops up your tea. The spout chinks against your cup. We've got the beacon, you see. One night every year there's a torch-lit procession, and we light the beacon on the cliffs. You've never seen the like of it. They say it keeps the spirit of the village alive for another year. It's a celebration, a celebration. She tails off for a moment and blinks. But you didn't come here to listen to me blather, and you must be hungry. I can rustle up a bit of stew. How would that be? You ask her again about her rates, and May names a price so low you accept it without hesitation. The room is small but comfortable, and the stew dark and hearty. After dinner, you have a couple of hours before your usual bedtime. And this brings us to our poll. The options are, one, to talk to May some more, or two, to walk around and get our bearings in Emberhead. Let's begin. Our last poll provided us with the options of staying and talking to May Ledbetter, or of going for a walk. The vote seesawed back and forth and for a time was locked in a tie, but the deciding votes swung us to heading out into the night. May's brow creases when you announce your intention to take a stroll. Mind how you go, she says. Emberhead's surrounded by cliffs and we don't have any of your fancy street lamps here. Take the lantern and watch your step. Outside, you see what she means. The sky is overcast and only a few, flu, few glimmers of moonlight peep from the clouds. Without the heavy lantern, you would be walking in near total darkness. You cannot hope to get an overview of the village tonight. May's Street is a narrow passage hemmed in by a squat, dark dwelling. At the end, however, it opens up. A wide thoroughfare leads off to your right. A crude sign names it as Silbury Street. To the left, a few yards away, your light picks out the crooked posts of a simple fence, and beyond that, the ground drops away into darkness. You take a couple of steps closer, but you can see nothing. 
air from below cools your face. Then, some instinct makes you look around. An ink-black figure stands in the road about twenty yards behind you. It stares at you. You form the sudden impression that it will run at you and throw you over the cliff edge. This is unsettling. Seeing that it has been spotted, the figure slips down an alley. As you approach, the figure takes a step back, then another. It slips down an alley between two buildings. To catch your target, you must make a track roll. If you succeed, go to 141. If you fail, go to 130. Now in track, we've only got the basic 10%. So let's see. 40. Nope, we do not succeed in our track roll. The figure moves fast, with almost silent steps. You are hampered with the heavy landing in an unfamiliar environment. You emerge from the alley into a dusty courtyard, and can detect no sign of your quarry. You scratch around for a few minutes, but the figure has gone. It seems unwise to continue your stroll through unknown dark streets, while this threatening presence is abroad. You head back to the Ledbetter house. May lets you in and settles back in her chair. Soon she begins to yawn. I believe I'll turn in. When would you like your breakfast? As May stands, you hear a clunk behind you. You look over your shoulder, but all you can see is a wooden door securely closed. May tuts. Oh, the young lady of the house. She'll have been listening to us. Ruth, come and get in. Come in here and greet our guest. There is a short pause, and then the door creaks open. Two wide eyes peer at you from the gap behind, between tussled hair and a, a rough nightgown. What, what did you say? The eyes blink. Pleased to meet you. Now get back to bed. The door closes again. My daughter, Ruth. Ten years this summer. She's a delight and a torment all in one. Don't worry, she sleeps in with me. She'll not disturb you. Good night now. You retire to your room. It is a little chilly, but you are too tired to worry about lighting the fire. The sheets are clean and the bed soon warms up. The silence outside is strange after living in a town for so long, but you soon drop off. You dream of a fire in the grate, coruscating colors shimmering through the dancing tongues of flame. At first they are tiny, almost microscopic but they grow and grow until a kaleidoscope inferno spills from the fireplace, spreading across the floor, up the sheets, you wake with a start. Daylight glints through the curtains and you get up and examine the grate, blinking the sleep from your eyes. It is quite cold. If you have taken any damage, and remember we did when we fell over in the coach, you may heal one hit point back from your night's sleep, so we will do that now. May seems to have no running water, but has supplied some in a ceramic jug. You freshen up at the washstand and go in. She cooks a hearty breakfast and leaves you in peace to eat. At about 7.30, you are paid up, packed, and ready to go. You bid May Ledbetter a goodbye, and she wishes you the best from your new career in Arkham. You are already tired of your heavy bags. Hopefully Silas has repaired the motor coach and you can resume your long journey. A sour puss he might be, but the old driver seemed to understand his vehicle well enough. You, pray, you pause to check your watch, still 20 minutes early, and round the final corner, the motor coach is gone. You put your bags down and search the area, trekking up and down the slopes and around corners. 
At the edge of the village you trace a long road back as it winds across the hills. Eight o'clock comes and goes. There is no coach to be seen. A passing villager notices your bags. Looking for the bus? I heard him take off at first light. He's due back in three or four days. If you if you need a place to stay, May Laidbatter has a room. The man raises his hat to you and strolls on into the village. You curse Silas under your breath. Perhaps he went for parts, but you wonder if the old goat has stranded you here on purpose. May is doing her laundry and looks surprised to see you again. Forgot something? When you explain the situation, she offers to store your bags while you try and arrange alternative transport. You are grateful to relinquish the load. Nobody here has anything like a car. She strokes her chin and narrows her eyes. Maybe you could find somebody with a horse and cart for your bags. I could ask around later. Try Mr. Winters at the village hall. He'll know if anyone will. Or ask among the artisans. Their workshops were are first on the left of Silbury Street. She reaches over and squeezes your wrist. Don't worry. I'll see you sleeping. I won't see you sleeping in the street, money or no money. You thank May and turn to face the village. You wander the streets of Emberhead without any particular destination in mind. The village is built on a relatively flat upland with splendid views. To the north, the hazy tips of the White Mountains reach for the heavens. To the south, the sparkling waters of Lake Winnesapuki touch the horizon. The village itself takes less than five minutes to cross from edge to edge. You arrived on the winding road to the west. The only other road leaves to the south following a lower bridge of land as it turns east. In the southwest of the village, an open grassy space borders a ruined church, its graveyard cresting the cliffs. To the northeast, the main thoroughfares meet at a raised black metal structure. It looms stark against the blue sky. Now, we have six options for our poll. Our options are to ask about transport at the local general store, to seek out the village hall, to walk down to the lower level and check out the eastern road, to examine the large metal structure, to explore the church, or to look for local people with their own transport needs. And we're going to examine the large metal structure. You walk up the approach, the most central of the village's major streets. It points directly at the odd metal structure. As you emerge from the shade of the nearby buildings, you are greeted by a magnificent panorama spread from the north to the southeast. The last colors of fall tint the hints, tint the hills in a sleepy gold. The structure, by contrast, is made from uncompromising iron, singed black. It supports an immense curved platform at the level of your head. Further, struts snake up to a central point. It looks like they may have been some kind of sculpture at one time, but are now twisted and melted beyond recognition. An older gentleman passes, looking up at you with roomy eyes. Are you here for the festival? he asks. That's the beacon. When they light it, next night after next, you'll be able to see it from ten miles away. He gives a little nod of satisfaction, then moves on, leaning on his walking stick. Now you notice bundles of wood tied and stacked against the buildings nearby. 
perhaps this festival would be an interesting diversion. But you really must head to Arkham as soon as possible. Make a spot hidden roll. What? Hooray! Our first successful roll. We rolled 001. If only I could zoom the camera in on that. Oh, awesome. Fabulous. We make a spot and hidden roll, do we? What? As you walk away from the iron structure, you notice something strange about the construction of the village. All the wooden dwellings are concentrated in the west and southwest. To the east and northeast, closest to the beacon, the buildings are formed from dark brick and clay. Does this mean the settlement began at the beacon and spread west? You may now mark the small box to the left of Spot Hidden. You are beginning to get your bearings in Emberhead. Would you like to explore some more? The poll results say that yes, we would. Next, we're going to explore the church. You cross the street towards the church. As you glance to your left, you ga your gaze alights on a large metal structure. Something bothers you about its positioning. You back up and look again. Yes, Amberhead's central thoroughfare points directly at the structure. This seems too precise to be a coincidence. You press on and draw into the shadow of the church. The building is in a sorry state. The top of the steeple is missing, a ragged gash of splintered boards marking its absence, and the floors beneath it have collapsed. It appears to have torn through the, t the roof of the remaining building as well. Only the back half is intact. The white paint, which once covered the church, has yellowed and peeled. It seems safe enough to explore the rear section. Old pews are stacked against the wall, choked with mildew. Most of the window windows are broken. You guess this church has been disused for about 20 years. There is little more to interest you. Make a ride roll. You may have a bonus die. Now, a bonus die comes with the starter set. So we get to roll the tens twice, and we take the lower of the two. Unfortunately, we only have 5% in ride, so we need to roll well. I think we wasted our 001. 70 or 30. Alas, we do not succeed in our ride roll. So we're going to explore the town some more. Next is the village hall. The village hall backs against a cliff at the east of Silbury Street. It's the largest building you've seen so far in Emberhead. It is, however, locked and shuttered. You walk around it, peering through gaps in the shutters. There seems to be one large room, presumably for community meetings, and a smaller annex that serves as, as an office and an archive. One of the windows is bricked up. Back at the main door, you can see no posted opening hours. Mr. Winters doesn't open up in mornings this time of year, says a grey-garbed woman passing by. Best come back this afternoon. You ask whether the office has a telegraph. Don't know, she shrugs. Who would we call? You'll have to try again later. Next, we're going to ask about transport. Next, we're going to ask about transport at the local general store. Sorry, accent problem. The general store is on a corner beside the main road just before it plunges to the south. The shopkeeper is a brisk, immense lady with a starched apron and strong shoulders. She looks hard at your unfamiliar face. Transport? There's a motor coach comes through twice a week. Missed it? Hmm. Truck brings in my supplies every second Tuesday. 
But he's not due until next week, she shrugs. It seems Emberhead is content to keep its distance from the outside world. Our last option is to uh, ask the locals for more transport options. Not far from Ledbetter House on the north side of Silbury Street, there is an open courtyard. The rhythmic tattoo of a hammer seems to announce your approach. The courtyard is the busiest you have seen yet in Emberhead. It is bordered by a ring of workshops. Some are brick buildings, some only rough huts. A blacksmith ceases to hammer, thrusting something red and glowing into a bucket of cold water. A weaver looks up from his loom, blinking at you for a moment before returning to his shovel. A potter, engraver, and carpenter, each work in their own space, exchanging friendly banter. You move among the artisans, chatting about their work. Eventually you bring up the question of export. Some of them send occasional packages with silence. Some restrict their custom entirely to villages. You receive no suggestions about alternative transport. Make a psychology roll. We have 50 in psychology. Let's see how we go. 67. Nope. We do not get our transport. So we've had enough from our poll results of looking around Emberhead. Uh, we're going to move on. Your morning exertions have left you hungry. You roam the streets of Emberhead looking for sustenance. There is nothing resembling the busy cafes of your hometown or anything that might be called a restaurant. It is beginning to look like you will have to get supplies from the general store when May Ledbetter comes down the street with a girl trailing in her wake. This must be Ruth. As she notices you, she races past her mother and approaches you with a smile. This is a different Ruth from the shy creature of last night. As she reaches you, she stops and stretches her arms up in celebration. She looks up into your eyes. Abruptly, the smile drops from her face and she looks several years older. Get out! Get out before the festival, she hisses. Get out! She blinks hard. Then she scuttles back towards her mother. May approaches, wrapping, her arm, wrapping an arm around her daughter's shoulders. She smiles. How are you getting on? Have you found transport? Startled, you explain the frustrations of the situation. I'd try Mr. Winters in the village hall. He's always in of an afternoon. You'll be hungry by now. Help yourself to any food in the house. The door's not locked. You glance at Ruth, where she has squirreled herself behind her mother's legs. Her eyes implore you to silence. We now have three options. We can ask Ruth about what she said. We can ask May about what Ruth said, or we can say nothing. Now, when we left our heroine, Ruth had just given us a startling message to get out of Emberhead before the festival, before she went and hid behind her mother. We had the option of asking her what she said, asking her mother what she said, or saying nothing. The poll result is in, prudence won out in the end, and we shall say nothing. Are you ready? Are you sane? Are you safe? You take your leave of the Ledbetters and head towards their house. The door opens easily. In the low kitchen you make a meal from stodgy bread and leftover stew. A little window offers a view to the mountains. 
If you learned one thing this morning, it was that Emberhead's streets hold little to occupy the visitor from out of town. But there are still about five hours of daylight remaining. You could take some provisions and the bare essentials from your luggage and set out in the hope of reaching another settlement before dark. Or you could ask advice from Mr. Winters. The village hall overlooks the lower north ridge of the village. You walk along Silbury Street to find it, conscious of the oppressive black metal structure framed at the end of the road. The shutters of the hall are open and some of the windows are left ajar. There is no knocker, but a little bell over the entrance tinkles as you push the front door. Inside, a sturdy door to your right is marked private. To your left, an opening leads through to a bright room. You take a few steps inside. Benches line the walls and there are two notice boards mounted between the windows. The floorboards creak beneath you as you cross the room. You feel a slight spring in your step. Perhaps this room is used as a gymnasium for the village children. One notice board appears to be for the adults of the community and the other one for children. The former looks neglected, featuring handwritten adverts for household items and a yellowed note about a telegraph pricing. There is nothing about the festival. The children's notice board has a schedule for weekly creche services and a number of paintings obviously done by the children themselves. Most are incoherent, though colorful. As best as you can tell, they depict fireworks, or perhaps the tale of Joseph from the book of Genesis. One has lost a pin and hangs upside down. It shows a giant bird attacking Emberhead. Or it might simply be that the artist has not yet mastered the subtleties of scale. Make a spot hidden check. Now remember, we've got 70 in spot hidden. 50. Fabulous. As the afternoon sun hits the floor, you notice something curious. The boards under the windows are newer than the boards in the center of the floor. The frames also show signs of having been replaced in the recent past. Perhaps rain leaked in and, and rotted the wood. The door scrapes behind you. A middle-aged, bespectacled gentleman appears in the doorway. May I help you? You explain you were visiting on May Ledbetter's recommendation. Ah, well, I'm Clyde Winters. I'm not sure I can help you, but would you like to come for some coffee? I'm partial to the cup in the afternoon. He gestures to the door behind him. This seems like a worthwhile opportunity, and you are a little thirsty. You step through the door marked private. The other side of the village hall is marked contrast to the public space. The room is compact, lined with shelves of books and file alcoves. One corner is reserved for a tiny pantry and what is presumably a water closet. You study Mr. Winters as he fills the percolator. Although thin on top, his hair is oiled and neatly swept back. His suit is a sober affair and well tailored, even if the cut is a little old fashioned. A lesser man working alone might have loosened his bow tie for comfort. <clears throat> on the desk against the opposite wall, you notice what looks like a telegraph set. The pot begins to gurgle and you exchange pleasantries with Mr. Winters. Living here? It's a trade-off like so much in life. He looks past you to the, to the high shelf. I could wish for access to a proper library, of course, but I know myself well enough. I, I'm strictly a dabbler, and the city's... His face wrinkles in distaste. Too many people. Everybody rushing and shouting. We have a special place here in Emberhead, and someone must accept responsibility for keeping it so. That was my father before me, and, and now the duty falls to me. He lifts his chin and straightens up. 
This evening, as the sun sets, look out at the landscape around the village. We have peace up here, halfway to the stars. Are we not privileged? Is it not worth the hardships we must accept? He looks at you speculatively. This seems like a good time to ask about the telegraph. The telegraph? Hmm. Much as we value our isolation, we do need the link sometimes. You were hoping to send a message? I must apologize. The line has been down for two weeks. I reported the fault, but of course, they're not so speedy when the problem lies in a rural area. I'm expecting a repair the day after next. I do appreciate how frustrating this must be. The coach is due in what, what, three days? But I, I think he's going west. P perhaps you might engage a wagon. One of the farmers might. You explained that you have asked a few of the residents already, but to no avail. I, I tell you what, Winners pours a steaming cup of coffee. The dark liquid smells rich and strong. When the repair crew arrive, I'll ask them to take you back with them. How would that be? They might want a dollar or two to, to grease the wheels. The day after tomorrow, it's, it's less than ideal, but the first real opportunity you've had. You make a small but flattering remark about the couple of volumes on his shelves. Winters blushes with pleasure. Well, well of course, they're not, they're not my personal collection. They belong to the village he says. But I did select most of the recent items. Uh, this is the community's library, you see. I put up the private sign to stop people wandering in from the meetings in the other room. But this is really a public space. You scan the shelves. There is a sparse but respectable collection on mathematics and the sciences, passable sections on history and arts, and a shelf of literature. He has a few lowbrow novels tucked away in a corner with tatty copies of Bizarre Tales magazine. Quality does not always equate to popularity, I'm afraid. Winters gives you an apologetic smile. Winters is happy for you to spend the rest of the afternoon in the study and offers you an upright but comfortable chair. You have enough time to pursue one line of research in depth. And so we come to our poll. We have four options to read about the history of the area, to read about the festival, to read about something from the sciences, or to read some of the weird fiction. When we last left Julie, she was in the Emberhead Library, reading a book of your choosing. The poll resoundingly chose us to investigate a book about the history of the festival. If you're in a safe place and feeling sane, let's play Alone Against the Flames. You are not surprised to find there is no published work on Emberhead's festival. Winters pokes around and finds a cased monograph handwritten on yellowing paper by a Dr. Anielowski. An acquaintance of my father's, I believe, Winters says. The manuscript is somewhat difficult to read and you make slow progress. Anielowski speculates that the festival has its origin in pagan rites brought over by Celtic settlers, which celebrate the ancient festivals of Beltan, Samhuin, Imbloch and Langesed. There is some discussion of the struggle between the seasons and a couple of oblique references to the alignment in Emberhead. Anielowski suggests that the meaning of the festival slowly changed around the turn of the century. The monograph terminates mid-sentence at the end of page 28, just as it begins to discuss the problems of modern practices. You ask Winners if he has the remaining pages. No, I'm afraid those have been misplaced, he says. Perhaps they are still in the library somewhere, but he shrugs. 
I must make some time for a thorough stock take. The afternoon wears on. You have not quite finished your reading when Winters glances out the window and stands up. He clears his throat. Make a credit rating roll. We have a credit rating of 20%. Ooh, 24. Just miss. Oof. I'm afraid I have to go and go some errands before dark. So I must close the library for today. I do hope you will return tomorrow afternoon if you're so inclined. You leave the building with Winners waiting as he locks up. You thank him for the coffee and the access to the library. He disappears off down an alley. You hope to be away from the village before tomorrow afternoon, but it's good to know there is a place you can occupy yourself. As the light fades, you return to the Ledbetter house and eat a light supper. May is usually taciturn. Ruth's eyes flick to yours several times during the meal. There is an urgency there you cannot quite interpret. Afterwards, May ushers the girl into, their, the girl into her room. You have been an emberhead for barely one whole day, and you have already feel confined by it, both geographically and socially. The evening seems to offer little. In time, May returns to the kitchen and busies herself clearing up. To speak to Ruth, you will need to get May to leave for a short while. You help with the dishes and try to think of some ruse. In time, an idea comes and you ask about Silas and his friends in the village. May narrows her eyes. He knows Troy on the other side of town, she says. Not sure I'd call them friends, more like an old feuding couple, but he probably spent last night at Troy's place. You ask May if she could visit Troy and ask if Silas mentioned any plans to return. May looks dubious. Right now? she asks. Make a fast talk roll. We have 50% in fast talk. 87. We do not succeed. May frowns and shakes her head. I'll be, I'll be happy to go and see him in the morning. I must see Ruth. I must see to Ruth for now. She's been a terrible handful today. Her bedroom door closes with a heavy clunk. The familiar surroundings of your guest room are becoming constrictive. The neat bed, small wardrobe, and dressing mirror have the feel of a prison cell about them. What are you still doing here in Emberhead? Your new life is elsewhere. You lie on the bed and stare at a small crack in the ceiling. You turn over the day's events, thinking through the little details you spotted. You are certainly wary from the elevation and the fresh air, but do you still feel safe here? Sleep presses down on you. You blink it back and sit up, trying to think through your situation. Everything in Emberhead seems to be working to stop you leaving. Perhaps the answer is to strike out at first light, to walk as far as possible as fast as you can. You can always return for your possessions, and if you lose them, you have nothing so precious that it could not be replaced. A tiny creak draws your attention to the other side of the room. Slowly, almost silently, the doorknob is turning. You leap up and heave the door open, ready for a confrontation. May stands on the other side, wrapped in her bed jacket. She steps back in alarm. You you seemed not not yourself, she stammers. I, I, I wanted to check up on you. You assure May that you are in fine health and watch as she returns to her own bedroom. Once the door has closed, you borrow a kitchen chair to wedge under your door handle. Perhaps this piece of fortification will permit you a few hours of restful sleep. You awaken to the sound of feet. 
in the street outside. Your night's rest has brought a new determination. Today, you will meet Emberhead on your own terms. The Ledbetter kitchen is empty, although bread and eggs have been laid out for your breakfast. There is a note from May explaining that she has taken Ruth out for a few hours. You make a quiet circuit of the village, pausing in unobtrusive places to watch the villagers. It is a rather busy for this time in the morning, yawning locals stream back from forward along the roads, carrying bundles of split logs to the side of what you heard referred to as the beacon. You see two figures already up in its superstructure arranging the wood. The festival bonfire will be most impressive. But do you intend to stay to see it? You suspect by now that something is amiss here. While the villagers are distracted, you may do some illicit investigation, or you may simply leave town without looking back. We have our next poll. We can search May Ledbetter's bedroom. We may go alone to the village hall, take a closer look at the artisan's courtyard, spy on activity at the beacon, or slip down the east road and flee for good. overwhelmingly indicates that we should invade May Ledbetter's privacy and search her bedroom. Clearly, you all think she's hiding something. If you're feeling safe and sane, let's play Alone Against the Flames. Despite her hospitality, you do not trust May Ledbetter. You return to her house quite openly. Where else would you go? Inside, the dwelling is still empty. You rap on the bedroom door and wait. Silence. You ease it open. The Ledbetter bedroom is in marked contrast to your own, a neat space. Dirty clothes are piled about the floor on a rough quilt like schoolbooks and cheap novels. You notice a raggedy old doll discarded down the side of the bed. Make a spot hidden roll. 70 for spot hidden. 93, we see nothing. You go through the Ledbetter's drawers. The only item of interest to you is a wedding photograph. May's husband was a wiry man with a square chin. Despite the formality of the pose, you can see the affection between them. You feel a pang of guilt at your intrusion. Also, May might return at any time. If you wish to push the spot hidden roll, make the roll again if you succeed. Right, let's push our spot hidden roll. 57, we make it, hooray! Okay, we succeed. You notice scrapes on the floorboards corresponding to the legs of the bed. With effort, you slide the bed away. There is a rug spread beneath it, and beneath the rug, a trapdoor. You ease it open. The dark space beneath is some kind of cellar. The daylight barely offers enough illumination to see, but a hot lantern during the daytime would be very suspicious. You squeeze beneath the floor and glance around. Your first impression is that May keeps her junk here, for there are many boxes of different sizes piled in untidy heaps. It takes a few seconds before you realize they are all traveling trunks or suitcases. There are about twenty of them. The implication hits you hard. Yet you maintain enough control to check the luggage tags. You count eight or nine different names before you stop. Scrambling back up to the bedroom, you close the trapdoor with trembling fingers, returning the bed to its place. You feel a deepening unease about Emberhead and this day in particular. 
Now, our poll result, uh, we had two other results, um, and we get to choose three. So we've explored the Maylead Bedders bedroom. We now get to either go to uh, the village hall or to the artisan's court, uh, courtyard. Let's go uh, to the village hall. Keeping away from the streets, you skirt the northern cliffs and approach the village from the village hall from the rear. It is close to the beacon and you will not be able to use the door unobserved. You check the windows. The one on the east side facing the beacon is bricked up. A shutter is loosed on the westernmost window and you are able to ease it open and slide inside, closing the shutter behind you. You drop into the village meeting room and pad through, passing dim shafts of light and listening to the excited chatter from the locals outside. The door opposite reads, Private. Hearing nothing from the other side, you turn the handle. The room is lined with books in the corner, a small water closet and pantry. A quick survey of the rest of the room reveals little, so you turn to the bookcase. The dim light makes it difficult to read the spines. Is there anything useful here? Make a spot hidden roll. Eleven. One, four, seven. You're looking along the spines when you notice how close to the bookcase is to the window on the north wall. From outside, there is a solid three or four feet between the edge of the window and the wall, and the bookcase covers the wall with the bricked-up window. Further examination reveals an ingenious arrangement of slipcases physically attached to the shelves. When you pull to the left, an entire section of the bookcase swings out. The clatter of activity around the beacon seems to be building, and you flinch at every conversation that gets too close to the building's doors. You squint into the darkness behind the bookcase. It is a small alcove, big enough for one person, and has a hidden shelf on either side. You cannot make out any titles in this light. You open the window a little. Enough light spills into the room for you to make out the titles. The contents of the alcove are quite different from the wider library. The books are much older. Some are handwritten, and many are in strange scripts you do not recognize. You could spend a week just browsing through the bizarre volumes. Make a library use roll. We have 60 in library use. 57. Ooh, just make it. Most of the texts are too obscure for you to understand without an extended residency in a good library. You are drawn to a volume in a heavy slipcase embossed with a dark red triangle. Its pages are spidery script, but the hand is neat enough that you can read it with effort. It seems that one of the set of seven discussing elements, here sulfur, mercury, and salt are added to the four classical elements. This book concerns fire. Flicking through the pages, you see astronomical diagrams, alchemical symbols, references to Dante, and speculations on the nature of damnation. Towards the end, there is a discussion of fire ceremonies and a transcription of two key rituals, call ye celestial flames and command ye celestial flames. You might be able to memorize one, but it will take time. Is all this nonsense, or is it worth risking discovery for? I think it is, and I think we will try and memorize Command ye celestial flames. You try to commit the wording of command ye celestial flames to memory. The text is full of strange characters and you can only make a best guess as to their pronunciation. The full chant will take about 20 seconds or so. The commentary offers some advice. 
Turn ye not your eye from the fire, though it dust water from the heat, and commit your heart and mind in full to the path which ye intend to walk, lest ye falter at the trial. You have discovered a secret. If the situation seems right for it, the text may offer you the option to chant. At that point, if you wish to try this ritual, add 50 to your current entry number and try that new entry. Tempting as it is to remove the book, it is too large to conceal. You slip it back onto the shelf and ease the bookcase back into place. Immediately, you hear a scratch of a key in the hall door. You sprint for the open window. Make a dex roll. We have 50 in dexterity. 34! We make it. With a burst of speed, you dart through the hall. As you hear the door open, you throw yourself through the open window. There is no time to cover your intrusion, but you think that you weren't actually spotted. And now we can investigate the artisan's quarter. You approach around the back of the buildings in Emberhead's northwestern corner. By this time in the morning, you would expect activity near the artisan's courtyard, and the benches are silent, and the anvils sit deserted. Your footsteps echo off the surrounding walls. One of the workshops is shut and padlocked. You peek through the joints, but you can see nothing inside. You examine the workshop. It is well constructed, but the wood has been weakened by years of sun and rain. You may be able to break it open with one fierce charge. You had better make it good, though. You can't afford to attract attention with repeated tries. Make a strength roll. We have 40 in strength. Oh, we rolled a nine. We smash that door down. You push aside the door and step inside the workshop. The air is cool against your face. You see light glinting through the eaves. The center of the room features a raised slab with a slight slope. An indentation beneath it suggests something sits there, a basin perhaps. Prone shapes are racked against the far wall, covered with red cloth. They look human. You approach the red shrouded figures, expecting them at any moment to leap up and grab you. There are three. Each has a label hanging from its toes. Benjamin Kramer, 19th of the 1st, 1927. Abraham Hollingsworth, 22nd of the 4th, 1927. Marion Phipps, 6th of the 8th, 1927. You lift one corner of the shroud. Underneath, wrapped in tight bandages, is a thin but unmistakably human form. You are looking at three dead bodies. Embalmed dead bodies. Make a sanity roll. If you fail, lose 1d2 sanity points. And we fail. Right, let's roll that and have it. Yes, indeed, we lose two sanity points for seeing three embalmed dead bodies. So, I thought you liked to snoop. Like what you found, did you? A burly villager fills the doorway, blocking out much of the daylight. You can make out a dark apron and a thick beard. He steps forward, fist raised. You struggle with the huge man. His fist comes out of the darkness like hammers. 
conduct close combat referring to page 18 to, 9, 18 to 19 of book 2. We've done that for you. Uh, the combatant with the higher decks acts first. We have a higher decks than our assailant, um, so we will act first. Uh, we can choose to fight back or to dodge um, against each attack. They're opposed roles. The higher success uh, wins, so if you roll a higher success um, against someone else who succeeds against you, you still win. So uh, we're going to fight back against this burly villager who blocks the doorway so i'm going to roll us first and then i'm going to roll the villager for his attacks um, so we're going to punch first um even though he's probably stronger than us uh, so we roll a 32 um, so we don't make it because our fighting um brawl is 25 uh his fighting brawl is 35 um and he rolls Oh, a 93. So he swings, he misses, we swing, we miss. Um, we're feeling lucky. We're going to do the same again. We're going to throw another punch at him. And we roll a 60. So we miss our punch. And he rolls a 5. A extreme success. Um, so his uppercut smashes into our jaw. Um, because it's an extreme success, that's maximum damage. His damage is 1d3 plus 1d4, so he smashes us in the jaw for six hit points of damage. Uh, we're currently on 13 hit points, so that takes us down. We are reeling backwards uh, against the wall, so um, we're not going to try and hit him now. We're going to try and dodge out of the way of his next uh, blow, um, and unfortunately we roll an 83, so our dodge is going to fail, but... Oh, he rolls a 45. So luckily his punch misses us as well. Um, now, after three rounds, you may attempt to circle round behind the man and escape. This requires a hard dex roll. Uh, so our dex is 50. A hard dex roll is we need to roll under 25. Um, if you do not achieve a success on the roll, you, he may be able to land another blow. All right, here we go. We've got to get out because we'll be unconscious in no time. Oh, 23! We roll a 23! Right. You sidestep and slip out of the workshop. As the arson follows you, you swing the door into his face. He staggers back a hand to his nose. You take the opportunity to flee. You can investigate further if you would like, but perhaps it would be wiser to leave town. You may mark a check in the small box beside the dodge skill. Well, we've tried three investigations. Uh... You are contemplating your next move when you see one villager, a bald man with a damaged ear, watching you intently. Some instinct makes you walk in the other direction. Then you see others ahead and to your sides, a wary teenager, an evil-eyed matron, and a man hefting a club. They are not staring as obviously as the first, but they keep you under watch, and you are, and they are closing in. You cannot hope to overcome all four of them at once. We'll try and lose them amongst the buildings. You dart down an alley and then turn and head in a completely different direction. Running feet sound behind you. For the first time you feel Emberhead's cramped, chaotic streets work in your favor. You try and circle round towards the southern road. Make a stealth roll. We have 30 in stealth. We roll a 91. We do not succeed in our stealth roll. You turn a corner and walk straight into the formidable woman with the malevolent stare. She grabs your shoulders and bears down on you. As you struggle, the man with the club runs up with the teenager. You are quickly overcome. 
The fading light from the narrow window tells you afternoon is giving way to evening. Your hands are shackled behind your back, so you cannot even lie down on the rough bed. A woman who you have not seen before comes in. Her face is wrinkled and her eyes are dull. They do not meet yours, but she puts a cup to your lips. You turn your face away, and when she tries again, you dash the cup from her hands using the side of your head. The clare liquid spills across the floor. The woman gives a half shrug and turns to leave the room. You shout after her, but she gives no reaction. You soon become thirsty. As the light fades outside, your little prison becomes dark. You can hear much activity around the building. Occasionally, an orange glow passes the window. The only comfortable position in the shackles seems to be sit against the end of the bed with your arms hanging behind you. You need to concentrate and come up with a plan. There is clearly no escape from your bonds. You do not know exactly what your captors want from you, but you cannot ignore the fact that they have spent the entire day constructing a massive bonfire. The door scrapes, wrenching you back into the moment. Orange light spills into the house from blazing torches held on at the threshold. Two large villagers step in and grab you. At least you assume they are villagers. They wear heavy black cloaks and their faces and hands are painted entirely black, save only for a red triangle centered on their left eye. They try to drag your legs, but they reach under your arms and lift you bodily from the bed. Outside, it seems that the whole village has congregated to see you. Every single one has a blackened face with a red triangle motif. Torches sputter and spill fire. You struggle, but you can see physical resistance is hopeless. You are marched to the central street and turned to face the beacon. The procession down the approach is slow and formal, save when you sense weakness and yank at your captors. A chill touches you when you see three human shapes carried ahead of you, draped in red cloth. The beacon looms larger and larger in its dreadful silhouette, a black triangle pointing to the stars. A low drone begins among the cloaked figures. Unbidden, the word mourners comes to mind. Smoke from their torches makes you cough. You feel the heat on your face. As you reach the cleared area around the beacon, three dancers break from the pack. Young girls swinging balls of fire in spectacular arcs, drawing circles into the night air. One by one, they draw close to you and touch your forehead with sooty fingers. Each kisses you three times on the left cheek, the right cheek, and then the forehead. Then they whisper in your ear. The smell of kerosene fills your nostrils. Make an appearance roll. We have 80 in appearance. And we roll a 70. Through your sacrifice, the village will be reborn, says the first dancer. You pass from earth to air for all our sakes, says the second. I've weakened the chains, says the third. Don't try to escape until the flames are high enough to hide you. You stare at the third dancer. In that inky visage, you clearly discern the frightened features of Ruth Ledbetter. Their dance weaves off and disappears behind the buildings. As you arrive beneath the beacon, ten villagers close in on you. Working with surprising coordination, they immobilize you and lift you up the blackened iron stairs to the raised platform. You cannot help but shiver at the sight of the central framework, 
twisted from past blazes, and what you can now clearly see to be fastening points for a chain. None of the eyes meets yours as they lash you to the metal. The village sings now, something rhythmic and ancient, carved from odd syllables. A second group ascends to the beacon, carrying the three red-draped bodies. With reverence, they arrange the burdens in a triangle around your feet. Then they withdraw, leaving you alone with the dead, shin-deep in a sea of kindling. It seems the entire village is gathered around the beacon to watch you burn. Beneath the face paint you recognize May Ledbetter, and, and yes, yes, that is Silas, the coach driver, standing on her side. The audacity and scale of their deception staggers you. A man steps up on a dais and raises his hands with quiet authority. The frame of his spectacles obscures the red triangle on his face. So, we draw together again on this night, as we do each year, and we give thanks to the one who will preserve the village against the fire of the void. You will be taken from the ones from above in our stead. Your death will bring life to our streets and bounty to our fields. It will safeguard our children and our elders alike for another year. We salute you, he bows his head. All around the beacon, bearers step forward and lift their torches to the edge of the raised platform. A ring of tiny flames flicker up around the perimeter. As they wink, the singing of the villagers drops to an unearthly rhythm. To throw all your remaining strength against the bonds, which I think we're going to do, you're tired and the flesh ought to be insufficient against the dark iron of the chains. Yet you can feel them give a little. There is weakness in one of those links. Make a hard strength roll. We have a strength of 40. So our hard roll, we need to roll. 20 or under. Core. <gasps> 17. As tongues of fire lick towards you through the kindling, you close your eyes and heave on the chains. They give a little more and then, clack, one of the chains drops. You wriggle in the coils, loosening the bond even as the heat singes your ankles. The man on the dais stares at your movements. Then he picks two youths from the crowd and points directly at you. Just as you shrug this chain off and step free from the ironwork, the youths mount the blazing platform. Flames spread up their trousers. As their cloaks catch, they dive at you. Make a hard dodge roll. Our dodge is 25. A hard dodge roll is 12. 34. Uh-oh. They bear you back into the center of the pyre. Their eyes are flecked with fervor and terror. Even as the flames spread over them and across your clothes, even as the heat builds and sears your flesh, even as the smoke chokes you and your vision blurs, they hold you down in the flames. Your screams mingle with theirs as the fire does its work. You have burned to death while grappling two teenagers. The end. Well,
Thanks again for joining us and for all your likes, all your comments and shares. Uh, that was unexpected, but um, expected, if that makes sense. What an absolutely thrilling end to the adventure. Um, we've really enjoyed delivering this uh, audience participation adventure to you. Um, hopefully it won't be our last. You may have noticed um, a couple of plants here behind me um, today. So on a personal note, if in the comments um, you want to say what you might like us to do, uh, we've got Soul Forge here from uh, Rastlin um, of Solace, and we've got an episode of Dungeon Magazine there. So uh, that may well um, whet your appetite for a future uh, audience participation Choose Your Own Adventure. Um, thanks for joining us. Um, I'm Murray from the Dice Stormers. Stay sane. Mm -hmm.